10,000 feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, Ph.D., and our feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing call-out culture, both in and outside of the Academy. Also, Rachel Dolezal will come up, and I don't think we've ever actually talked about her on the podcast, so that's exciting. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the Internet? Thanks for asking, Rachel. They can find us in select places. You can subscribe to us using your favorite podcast application. Uh, You will get extra FKJ bonus points if you leave us a review on iTunes because it is a great way to spread the word about us and then gain new followers. Like if people search feminism, then we pop up and then they see your reviews and then more people listen. On the social tip, you can follow us on the Gram, the Twitter and the Facebook On Facebook, you can like our page for episode updates, but we also have a closed community page. So search for Feminist Killjoys Community dash WTF Power. We'd love to have you. And then on the FI, we have the Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape curated by Rachel. And if you have some extra dollars and want to support us feminist media makers, you can leave us a mini micro monthly donation on Patreon. Patreon donators, by the way, get access to our spanking new newsletter that is called The Killjoy Review, also curated by Rachel with assistance from me. And if you just want to give us a little dough for some coffee or anxiety medicine or other things that we need to run this podcast, you can visit our website at feministkilljoyspodcast.com. Click on the birdie and leave us a one-time donation. And then as always, you can email me in year 2005 by using an email address, which is fkj.phd at gmail.com. Booyah. Boom. What's up, Rachel? How are you? Uh, I'm o- I am a-okay. Uh, it's last week of before grades are due. So uh, senior grades were due on Friday, and everybody else's grades are due on Monday. And I have mostly everybody in, with the exception of a couple stragglers whose papers I accept late, for better or worse. Uh, so I'm almost officially, officially, officially done at the school where I've been for four years. So again, more bittersweet feelings. But it's been okay. It's been a good busy week. We did a little more social socializing this week, which makes me happy because I am have enough extrovert in me that I need that. So we went out to celebrate Logan's uh, seven-year chestiversary, so the seven-year anniversary of his top surgery, which was which was fun. I think we did something else social that I'd... Oh, I had book club last night, which was great. And Monday, uh, there was like a pedagogy workshop that I helped organize at my school with a really wonderful kind of newer friend of mine named Shannon Weber. Shout out, Shannon, if you're listening. You're very smart and taught us a lot about feminist pedagogy. So yeah, I got to see good people. It was good. It was a good week for the most part. Busy. Grading is busy. How about you? I went to my students' graduation. It was really awesome to see them. They're very proud, and it was just a good time. And uh, I listened to the new Kendrick Lamar on the way home, and I don't like it. So we can just talk about that during RWL, since that's mm-hmm. my L. But last but not least, um, I do want to give a shout out to Manchita, my absolute favorite hip-hop artist. She had an album release party that I couldn't go to last night because of graduation. And my wonderful partner like told her that I wasn't going to be there. And she autographed, I have it in my studio. She autographed the CD because of course I buy CDs and it said, Melody, you are a treasure to me. Oh, amazing. I know. Amazing. I know. (laughs) That's incredible. And we like don't even talk. Like I just love her from afar and I guess she appreciates me from afar. And also all the hippie woo-woos out there, if you could just send some energy, I did extend an invite to Manchita to come on our show because her album's coming out soon. So I thought she'd be a great guest. Oh my gosh, that'd so, be amazing. Fingers crossed. I know. I know. So yeah. we'll just, just send some energy and we'll see what percolates, what comes of it. So I had a good, I've been having a good week. Great. So I'm going to just uh, appreciate that and acknowledge that and great. be okay with that. You know how sometimes when things are going well, you're like, shouldn't I just be upset about something? I'm used to yeah. being upset about No, totally. That's that's what I talk about in therapy a lot. <laughs> Shout out to therapists. They're the best and totally normal and everybody should go see one. 
totally. if you have insurance that'll cover it. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So moving on, uh, we we haven't really done our Who's Earning the Dinner Party segment in a long time, and I think it kind of coincided with the sort of post-Trump election era because, you know, he and his administration are just always ruining the dinner party. But was there anything else more specific or different that you wanted to talk about this week? I wouldn't say that he has been ruining my dinner party every week because I've been just trying to like mentally get over it. Did we ever talk about on the on the show? Ann Friedman sent this out on her newsletter, but the, that Trump, how to deal with the Trump era from a therapist. We haven't talked about it, but I've seen that article going around. Okay, we should we should link it out because I do you like it or do you find that? Yeah, advice? I still haven't read it. Cl- I still haven't read it closely yet. Um, okay. Admittedly, I've just skimmed it. So I can put that in our uh woo and self-care segment of our newsletter. Oh, that'd be great. The reason why I bring it up is because just this last week, I've been kind of, I don't know if it's reverting back to, but I think like different stages of mindfulness or grief maybe Mm -hmm. is like I've been having another wave of, are you effing serious? This is Mm -hmm. our reality. We were supposed to have a very smart, warmongering female president Mm -hmm. in office. (laughs) Problematic, yes. I think with the Comey stuff that's been coming up with the FBI, it's just, it's reigniting my, like, this is, like, this is just insanity. And, like, the press is trying their hardest. I'll listen to NPR. And the press is trying to ask these questions to the administration. Don't you find the timing to be a little problematic? And they just make up some weird excuse. I'm asking you, does the timing seem weird? And then they just answer something like they just try to change the subject completely. And it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's just, I'm just having another moment of this cannot be reality, but it is. And I know there's been some discussion of don't normalize it. Don't normalize him being president. You don't want to become complacent, but at the same time, don't have an anxiety attack every day about what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a hard time. Either I let go completely or I consume it consumes me. Do you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. What's your headspace about it recently? To be honest, I'm continually, continued to rather, be in a sort of vortex where I don't listen to the news that much, um, if at all. Like I, I, I went from listening to NPR almost all the time if I was ever in my car, which unfortunately is a lot because of the job I've had here for four years, to literally never having NPR on at all. And all I do is listen to podcasts. So then I read the news, you know, via my social media feeds and checking in on other sites that I look at, but not if I don't want to. <laughs> and it's been very interesting for somebody who's, you know, obviously very engaged and trying to say current for the sake of my students and my own politics, I've had this like very interesting withdrawal, sort of not withdrawal, but like um, withdrawing from from engaging with it. So yeah, when I heard about all the new stuff, it's like, okay, another thing that I'm going to just sort of take some space from. So yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. It does. The the pushback that I would have that because I've gone through the same thing, too, where I've just had music on in the car instead of NPR mm. that rhymed. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. If we are truly living in this time, like imagine if somebody said to you, oh, that Iraq war, like I didn't really pay attention to it very much. I mean, it was just bothering me. So I just like didn't, you know, I think yes. I would have kind of a reaction to that. Right. We are possibly living in a time in which our government is in cahoots with the Russian government, plus all this other crap that has been circulating. That's why I'm also kind of I'm I'm I I I totally hear you and agree with you. And that's why I'm like, wow, Rachel, you're like very engaged politically and you're like not engaging. One, I think that when I say I'm not engaging, it means I'm not listening to NPR. But like I said, I'm still reading the news. So it's not like I'm ignoring it. But Mm -hmm. two, I think there's something to be said for, you know, I'm very focused on small scale things like um, I'm, I'm learning a little bit more about local politics in the sort of Boston area that I'm in, as always engaged with reading about jails and prisons and housing issues and the labor movement and all of these things that are sort of on the ground that aren't related to our this person in the White House. It's so baffling that this is who is in office, that it's like I'd, I'd rather focus on the tangible stuff on the ground, which is often in my sort of world sort of better to focus on anyway, since in the system mainstream politicians are, you know, I I don't like, you know, I've never really felt hope in any of them, let alone this person, you know. 
Yes, and I totally relate to the concept of focusing on local politics. And that's what a lot of engaged people would argue, actually, is that you really should be spending your time and energy working on local politics where you can make a change. So that would that's a good reminder for everybody. Ultimately, it's a coping thing, though, that I'm not going to like sit there and inundate myself with all the the new news about this administration. So mental health at the end of the day is most important because if you can't show up, then how are you supposed to show up for other people? Totally. So that's I mean, so that's that a perpetual Trump administration dinner party ruining. And really, I mean, my friend, my dear friend, Venerine is often like, I'm going to puke when I think about him. So like, he really is ruining our dinner because like, we literally sometimes can't like him like not like I've had many times where I'm like, I'm really too nauseous to eat food. Um, So literally, yeah, that fucking. Yeah, I love your your human garbage. That's great. Human garbage. He's a piece. Huge yes. piece of human garbage wrapped up in dog poop set on fire. <laughs> exactly. So shall we move on to our main topic of the day? We shall. We want to talk about call-out culture per the request of one of our favorite listeners and former guests, Dr. Mish Zimdars. She posted in our Facebook group an article that had been circulated in response to the sort of big kerfuffle feminist academic sphere. I want to dig into it because that's specifically what this article is about, but after we sort of unpack some of this academic stuff, uh, we're going to get more generally into this idea of call-out culture because that's sort of the uh, the thing that emerged from this is idea of call- call-out culture. So can we have a working definition of what we mean by call-out culture? Yeah. Do you want to take that? Yeah. So when we are talking about call-out culture, there is this idea that if you are hearing somebody say something problematic maybe at a public talk, they use some kind of problematic term that you want to call them out. So oftentimes this is done in public where you will like raise your hand or interrupt the speaker. And sometimes it's not all this like dramatic, but it's the concept of like directly calling somebody out for their shit, like right in their face and demanding a response. And so during the election, we saw that happen with Bernie Sanders when women of color came up on the stage and demanded that he address racial issues. And then also we saw this with activists directly confronting Hillary Clinton, calling her out for her stuff, calling you know people of color predators and all this and asking her to respond to it directly. And so this is the kind of calling out. Um, and it's been calling out has been critiqued. And so we will talk about calling in at the end, but it's a culture because it's something that happens in academia a lot. It happens in activist cultures. And it's something that is up for debate about whether this is the best way to make changes in the world. And I would just, that's a great definition, but I would just clarify that I think the examples you gave, those are examples of like direct action activism, which can inspire this sort of interpersonal calling out that I think is more what call-out culture refers to is the sort of interpersonal level of that because the the two events you described, those were planned, organized, direct confrontations about sort of systemic and structural issues, which can happen interpersonally. But d- does that make sense, though? I think that there's a slight difference. Oh, yeah. Yes. I appreciate that nuance. And I think I was just pulling those because those are televised ones that I know that we might all have the same shared knowledge. Yeah. I can't be like, remember, Rachel, when I called out that person in the lecture <laughs> right. hall, you know, right. but it could be that, too. It's like somebody says something problematic in your class. And instead of holding it in, wait a minute, that's kind of effed up. Let me tell you why. Absolutely. And also the Internet. I mean, this happens on the Internet. All What's the internet? I'm not familiar. <laughs> um, just yes. think of any th- any thread where somebody posts the gif of Michael Jackson eating popcorn, like because oh, they're yes. <laughs> that that's probably some some version of call out is happening. Because anyway, so the internet is a place where it happens too. Thank you, Mel, for for starting there. So with that in mind, another sort of example of this is the response to a journal article, an academic journal article. It's a journal called Hypatia. I think I'm pronouncing that right. By Rebecca Tuvel. And the name of the article was In Defense of Transracialism. By that, she means in defense of Rachel Dolezal to an extent. I skimmed the article. Admittedly, like I think many people who were weighing in on this didn't read the whole thing closely. She does start from a place of being very pro-transgender people. She she uses the word transgenderism, though, which is a word that 
many, I'd say most scholars, activists, and often, you know, obviously trans people who are outside of those spheres tend not to prefer. That's that's considered a word that's not okay to use in the West, in Western contexts and Western frameworks. So already, like within her first paragraph, people were, were on kind of red alert. People were on alert because she was about to defend Rachel Dolezal, who if, as a rem- as a reminder, if, you, if you're not familiar, Rachel Dolezal is the woman who was the president of the NAACP, and it became revealed that she actually wasn't a black woman, but rather actually a white woman who was getting tans and making her hair appear to be sort of in the style of natural black hair and, and commits to uh, articulating her identity as transracial in that although she was born white, she feels and wants to move through the world as a black woman. Um, so that's that's who this person is. Most many people sort of who are generally on the feminist anti-racist side of things are not about that life, um, Rachel Dolezal's life. So obviously this article was going to get some pushback. From there, there was a big a big letter to the journal that was attacking the journal for allowing an article that not only defended Rachel Dolezal, but also used this word transgenderism and also failed to engage with critical race theorists, which is like a really important body of literature if you're going to make arguments about race and the construct of race. And basically attacking the intellectual, um, the lack of intellectual rigor of this piece, as well as sort of the content itself. And from there, the article, the uh, the journal sent out groveling apology, saying that they, you know, were so sorry that this created harm and violence to trans and uh, POC communities, and they never should have published it, and it's a failure of the peer review process. This is kind of a big deal for academia because a lot of people are very committed to academia as being a space for sort of controversial ideas and dialogue and all of these things that can be used in really good ways and also really disgusting ways. So this is the situation where in some ways, probably throughout my little spiel about this, you were like, oh, I know which side I'm on. And then maybe there was another part that you were like, well, this is kind of complicated. And so it's complicated. So we want to talk briefly about specifically that idea of sort of academic freedom and these kinds of things. Also, we can get in a little bit to the content of that article. But then it's also about the response to this article. So, Melody, I just talked a lot. What do you you think? Well, I find this an interesting topic, not just for call out culture, but this actual topic of bringing together transracialism, being transracial and being transgender because I had a student actually journal about this the other week and I didn't actually have a great response for him because as I was thinking it through, and this is so this is more about the content specifically, mm-hmm. it is a interesting thing to theorize and think about because if gender is understood as socially constructed and race is considered socially constructed as well, then why is, and I think this is part of what the article was getting at, is like, why why are we so open and willing to talk about people being transgender, but when it comes to race, we're just not allowing that, like we're stopping that immediately. And I had never actually really thought about those two brought together, which is a a very big plus for academia, that even if you don't like how the research is done, a la my love-hate for Richard Florida, these things are useful for your own brain power and for your own argument's sake. I appreciate that somebody is attempting to theorize about these things. So this is from a philosophy, a feminist philosophy journal, which gets really jargony really fast. But I think it's an it is worth talking about instead of just shutting transracial arguments down as being like no way, no how, instead of t- kind of teasing out this like form of social construction and whether we only allow certain social constructions to kind of develop fully. So I'm just really interested in this debate. But what ends up happening in this case is that there has been a assumed correct position to take. And those who feel like they are in the correct position are calling her out pretty intensely and admittedly probably making her feel like shit. It's not fun to get called out, even if you feel like you are in the right. It just is not a good feeling. I'm curious, very briefly, if you had something, if you know more about the discussion of transracial, transgender, social construction argument. Yeah, I mean, well, back when Rachel Dolezal was first coming in to people's consciousness in the media, that was 
right around the same time that Caitlyn Jenner was coming out. And so there were quite a few think pieces and popular uh, articles that were circulating about this exact topic from both trans people and cis people and POC and white people. In general, it kind of seemed that good feminist, left-leaning people were on the side of transracialness being an impossibility. Rachel Dolezal is an opportunist who was, you know, uh, appropriating black culture to, you know, find success in a realm that wasn't even her realm and those kinds of things. And I agree with all of those critiques of Rachel Dolezal because she was an opportunity. You know, I I do understand it as opportunism if you're going to lie about um, or rather I'm trying to be. open to to a different framework. But if you're going to say that you are a particular racial category in order to get something, I think you need to be really fucking self-critical about ethics. <laughs> All that is to say is that, you know, it, it's been it's been discussed. And so this, as as is the case in academia, and this came kind of two years after many other articles, you know, articles yeah. were being written in popular publications. But, uh, but I think it's saying this idea that there appeared to be a right side to be on, because I think that's when things get really tricky is, you know, it's it's easy to say, okay, there's people who are for Trump and people who are against Trump. That's honestly like such a, a, a lovely division to have in our country right now because it's so <laughs> mm-hmm. easy. It's like, oh, we're all in agreement that that this we're all being whatever any anybody who you meet who is against who is anti-Trump. It gets much more fucking complicated when you're like, wait, are you more of like a third wave feminist or are you like an anti? Just like we were talking about last week on the show with all of the different iterations of feminism, there is no monolithic opinion of whether it's people of color or trans people. Amongst those communities, amongst feminist communities, you're going to have a lot of different p- opinions. Overwhelmingly, the the side came down on transracialism, like I said, not being legit, partly because I think one way I've kind of explained it or thought through it is that there's not a history of appropriation of gender in the way that there is a history of appropriation of race in which white people take something from POC and benefit from it. That's there's not quite that history with unless you want to think of like labor, like men take women's labor, but men aren't pretending to be women in order to get benefits. It, it just doesn't map on that way. So I think that that history is like really significant and an important distinction. That's a, a little bit of, of background on how I've thought through it and how others have thought through it. That no, that that helps. I mean, I think that's where I I was kind of sensing the answer to be anyways that always comes back to historical context and who's been marginalized in the past. And I've just, you know, been struggling to talk about that with my students, especially when they're not from America, because I have to talk to them about this long, long, long history of racism that, you know, somebody from Ukraine, Russia, they don't deal with race the same way we do. And so to make this a a more global conversation, it's really hard to explain all this to non-U.S. students uh, because they have to understand this really intense relationship that we've had with race in this country. You know, I had a student kind of write about this and he's like, I don't I don't understand transgender, but I also don't understand transracial. So it all sounds good to me. And I'm like, OK, well, really like that you're not being judgmental, like you're just like trying to understand. But it, it I had a feeling that it just really did come down to historical context, but I wasn't sure because it's been a couple years, if after all the thing pieces came out, you know, a kind of carried on argument that I might have missed or just kind of lost in the collection of thing pieces that came out. So I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing something. Yeah, there there have been other pieces written and actually something I want to bring in. Uh, it was actually just a Facebook post that got quoted in a bully blogger post that mentioned some other people like Adolf Reed and some other people have been thinking through this. So we'll link to that in the newsletter. Something that this former colleague of ours, Ani Duda, writes is that a couple of things that I want to point to. And the first is what you were just talking about uh, in terms of non-U.S. born people. And one of the big critiques of this piece is that use of the word transgenderism. And Ani was explaining that some what we would classify as gender nonconforming people in India use words like transvestite and crossdresser and shemale, words that are like not okay in U.S. Western queer culture. And so that, again, it's projecting this kind of framework that that is Western centric and that 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 is also maybe 
problematic. And then another thing that Ani was saying that I think is a really important element of call-out culture and the way that it manifested in this in this letter and this response to this essay is this idea there there was multiple uses of the idea that this article harmed and violenced marginalized communities, trans and POC communities in particular. This is an incredibly, I think, difficult topic to think about for me in particular because I really believe in the power of language and think hate speech doesn't deserve a place in the world and it's fine if we shut hate speech down. And I do often talk about how language and the way and the and the ideas and ideologies that language promotes and develops and con- concretizes can be harmful and violent. It's also it's it's also a big claim and it can make an abstraction out of violence, which is another thing Anya is, is referring to in this post that that we'll link to. It abstracts violence from sort of material violence, direct material violence, and it washes over the other ways that if we're going to talk about sort of more abstract violence, uh, it washes over the fact that academics do that like literally all the time, whether it's something explicit like this that people can point to and say, OK, your discussion of uh, race and gender is going to harm communities that are marginalized in those in those particular areas. So that's something that's like concrete. But if you think about even queer and POC scholars, and again, this is Ani talking as a queer POC, and actually they sort of reject those categories again because they're very uh, critical of sort of Western categories. They were saying even queer and POC scholars use, for example, the death of queer people and the death of black bodies to like philosophize and theorize in order to write books and get tenure and promotion and get jobs. And that that too is exploiting the material violence and harm against communities for the benefit of one's like personal career. And that we're all fucking complicit in that if we write anything about (laughs) marginalized communities. So I really loved their response to this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about all of that. But specifically, I'm really interested in the idea of can scholarship be harmful and violent? Can speech in general be harmful and violent? Is that why we're trying to stop it? What does that mean, et cetera? I have a few thoughts on this. And so just to be clear, I did. I also did not read that full article, but it it's kind of irrelevant because we're talking, we're just kind of using it as an example. And the nuance, if we got into the nuances of what they wrote, we could just go on and on and on. But the concept that Ani started bringing up that was particularly easy to see as violent was this concept of dead naming, which is what that means is when you refer to a person, a trans person who their birth name is different than what they have now. And one form of violence is to refuse to use the name that they have now and use their birth name. Name they were assigned at birth. The name they were assigned at birth. What did I say? Their birth name? What is the difference? Well, I mean, I think I think just in general, it's like a good habit to get into like using assigned at birth. Yeah. Yeah. Assigned at birth. Okay. The name they were assigned at birth. Yeah. Given assigned. The name that their parents or guardian or somebody gave them at birth. Okay. Right. I'm learning. I'm learning here. Recorded learning in process. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the name that they were assigned at birth is different than the name that they have chosen. What's the. Yeah. So for example, Caitlyn Jenner, her name is Caitlyn Jenner. What What was her name before? Well, we the won't. name that was assigned at both. Well, we don't even say it, well, right? We, don't, we wouldn't say it, right? Chelsea Manning is another person. That's her name. And if you would refer to the name assigned at birth right now in a news report or a blog, you just don't. It's a it's a dead it's a dead name. And so, in this article that is now being called out, they were dead naming Caitlyn right. Jenner. So I just wanted to clarify that, like that was one of the forms of violence. Mm-hmm. If you have, if you don't want to read this like jargony article, <laughs> and I will say. I love Ani dearly. It's also very jargony. You know, it's very smart. Like this is Rachel's point about how language and academic theory can really help kind of tease some things out. And I learned a lot and it made me think differently. But honestly, it's very hard to get through. And what else you were asking me about the hate speech thing, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I want to back up. So back up. So you're naming that as a form of violence. So you do you do believe that writing speech rhetoric can be violence? Yes, of course, because I mean, if especially if it's inciting violence against if it encourages violence against other people. And even I mean, Malcolm X, his stuff is referred to as violence rhetoric. So, yes, I think it, it can be a, a powerful form of violence or represent violence. But legally within I'm not a constitutional scholar, 
But in terms of censoring this kind of stuff in academia, it's going to get really it's really tricky. It's not it's good luck. Yeah, which is why people were so shocked that the journal was like, OMG, we're so sorry. We should never have published this because it's very rare for academic journals to back down from like, quote unquote, intellectually rigorous debate. And in some cases, I think that's like a load of bullshit, which is why, for example, when a university is bringing Milo Yasnopoulos, whatever his name is, to campus is a form of intellectually rigorous debate. Fuck no, shut that shit down. Basically, the the sort of letter to the journal was kind of saying you know, they weren't calling this Milo, right. but they were saying, shut this down. This isn't this isn't OK. And and so, you know, it's hard for me because normally I'm like, I feel like I, I to, to many people's dismay. I, I live my politics can be pretty black and white. It's like there are some things that are OK and some things that aren't OK. There's some people that are good, some people that are bad, structures that are good, structures that are bad, et cetera. But I actually think this might be a gray area, which is kind of scary for me because then it's like, okay, well, what lines do you draw? And so that's, uh, you know, when I was prepping for this, I really wanted to have like a a concise answer about how I fell on this stuff in particular in academia. And I, and I don't. So I, and I'm not sure that I, that this article that she wrote warrants this kind of response. Somebody said, to your point, this is what we're going to spend our energy on calling people out. Like, why don't we call out the financial in- financial institutions yes. that are still like wreaking havoc on people? Why don't we, you know, like exactly. there's so many other people that we could be calling out with this amount of energy and vigor. I don't think that she is the enemy. She wrote something very problematic, but not the number one enemy. Like right. we could definitely call her in and speak right. with her about it. But now there's going to be this form of marginalization that is going to make that almost impossible probably to happen. I think it's important. Rachel and I accidentally were both watching Antifa uh, videos today. Mm-hmm. And so in some of these moments in New Orleans, especially, they were having infighting like within the Trump and Confederate flag loving world. They're not going to, I'm sorry, I shouldn't conflate them, but (laughs) um, the infighting was about that. And somebody made a point of like, see, this is why we have to stick together because this could happen to us. We're like, Antifas are fighting with more moderate leftists Mm -hmm. and, you know, and we problematize the heck out of it too, but it's, I don't know if it's the right time to be, it's never really the right time to be... Infighting? Infighting, yes. I mean, I think there needs, sometimes there needs to be infighting on the left. But respectful, whatever respectful means. I don't know, this is when it gets tricky. I I think we're going to be all over the place this episode. I also think we're talking about really different contexts. Like, I think direct action, protests, like the videos we were watching today, these people, there was like a free speech rally in Boston where a bunch of Trump-loving, Confederate flag-waving, Blue Lives Matter chanting, mostly white cis straight men they that's what they appeared to be were you know taking taking boston and then yeah black block etc uh showed up and they you know were not being polite we watched somebody rip pictures of fetuses off a pro pro life sign and, <laughs> that was awesome yeah so awesome. should that have been respectful dialogue no fuck that noise no like, no but right. so it depends I mean, on the situation it depends on the environment it depends on who you're talking to yeah i mean absolutely i i feel like this this woman who wrote this article we could have had a more we i didn't even sign the damn letter there could have been a more respectful dialogue that happened but again that letter that was sent out that a lot of professors signed was not it wasn't against the author it was against the journal because peer review is like a bunch of I mean, it is a long process. There's many people who read your article and send very critical feedback to you. And knowing that that is a feminist journal for that to slip is pretty outstanding. So there's there's so much more to say, but let's start giving some concrete examples that not just in academia, not just in protest spaces, but what other ways can we think about talking about call out culture and how it looks in the world, whether it's on the internet or in the classroom or at the workplace? I'm interested to sort of hear your thoughts. I mean, it sounds like you're saying there's sort of a time and a place. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. I mean, so what are what are some other examples that you think it might work or not work? I've been thinking a lot about the times that I've been called out and that I've called other people out. And it it's had various degrees of success. So a successful story is that when I was more in my militant feminist ways, I still am, but I've softened up a little bit being a teacher and trying to bring everybody in. You kind of learn how to like not be so militant in the classroom. And so I've really applied that to my whole entire life. And when I was more militant, I would do a lot of calling out within my family 
you know, so my dad would give my brother a card, a Christmas card, and it had something sexist, you know, like a woman being stuffed down a chimney or just something horrible. Totally disappointed in them. Like, really, guys? Like, I did not expect this from you. So I would call them out and I would make them feel like shit and I would do that a lot. They either got defensive. And so that's just one example, but it would just go on and on and on. So either they would get super defensive or they would say things like, you always make me feel like I'm walking on eggshells around you. So I didn't like that because one of it was defensiveness and the other one was, I have to be so careful around you. I don't know what to say. You know, I don't want to say anything racist. And that's my my mother. She'll be like, I, I don't know. Can I say it? Can I say that I was in the ghetto? No, mom, you cannot say you were. I mean, you can. But I, yes, I will give you a weird look. Right. Uh, for a long time, I was kind of beating myself up for the calling out that I did with my brothers for many, many years. And I would talk to my dad about it. And I was like, I don't know. I shouldn't have done that. And he's like, no, Melody, you know what? You don't you didn't see it. But they change like they would change. Like after you would say something like they might have gotten defensive in your face. But I saw them alter their behavior in the future. And, you know, my oldest brother has said that to me multiple times. He's like, I'm so glad that you called me out when I was younger. I didn't know. And had you not said that, I wouldn't have known. It worked. But for people who call, if you're worried about the other person's feelings, which I am often, you might feel like it's not doing much good. But I feel like if you put them through that kind of jarring experience, they and I do this with biking a lot, too. This is totally not political, but somebody who like cuts me off, I'm like, fuck you, like just like ends up being very yeah. dramatic. But I swear that after that happens, how can you forget that encounter? Right. And even if you're giving the bicyclist more room so they don't yell at you again, you're at least giving us more room. And if you don't say anything sexist anymore because you're worried that your sister is going to be around the corner, then at least you're not saying sexist things anymore. It's it's a risky form of making people accountable for who they are, but I think it might work better than people feel like it might. And also it requires a certain type of person. So one of my students, she's a very traditional introvert and she will not call people out. Mm -hmm. um, she will make friends with the person that is being marginalized and maybe speak with them quietly later. But, you know, this is not for everybody. In terms of me being called out, and I can think of, you know, when we were in that feminist theory class, that yeah. happened constantly. Yeah. And that did not make me feel good. It still doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. But did I turn into a better scholar and activist fr from it? Probably. Yeah. You know, they made me think about things in a way I never would have. I didn't like their tactic <laughs> because, mm -hmm. again, you know, I have trauma with yelling. And so it doesn't I don't re react very well to that. But I can't say that it hasn't impacted me for the better. Yeah. Because I still think about those conversations. Right. For our listeners, I mean, you probably put the pieces together, but we were in a really contentious uh, feminist theory methods class and there was uh, lots of calling out that happened. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Your your discussions about your family echo mine. I mean, I love my family, but, uh, you know, they sometimes say things that feel really problematic. And uh, I've, I've noticed changes because I've because I've said things, which sort of in that case, I think, demonstrates the impact of having a relationship with the people you're calling out as opposed to, I don't know, some of the other examples, like, is it, a, is it definitely as effective if you, you know, like the car, the guy in the car, like, maybe you're right, like, he probably won't forget that. But is there something to be said for the sort of strong, there's a sociological essay about why people like stay involved in this is separate, separate, but I'm applying the theory, like, people get involved in sort of protests and activist movements, because they have a connection to somebody involved in those groups. And so it's like this idea of strong ties. And I'm wondering if that is applicable to call out culture, like if you have a strong tie to somebody who's calling you out, is that more impactful? Um, right. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Because I'm just thinking about, like I said, my, my family res responds to that. And you know, but they love me. And probably want to do right by me, as they say. I hear you. And I think I've never been qu quite as militant interpersonally, I think, as as you have. As And that's one of the things I said I loved about you in our Love Letter episode. So I haven't done it as much. I've certainly talked about it on the podcast and written about it in blog posts and written about it in essays and found polite and decorous ways to talk about it in classrooms. So I don't know that I have a ton of experience thinking about that outside of the one I just said about my family. But I think I feel similarly, like I remember those conversations in that feminist theory class and they were really uncomfortable. And I think another thing about call-out cult culture is that oftentimes the people being called out are people who hold non-marginalized positions 
who are talking about marginalized people or something that impacts marginalized people. And it's okay to make people in dominant power positions feel uncomfortable. But if it ultimately isn't effective, I don't know. I don't know. I also think it's important to think about who you are, who the person is and like where the what what the issue is and like where you are. Right. It's so it's so dependent on the situation. And I wish it was more clear than that. Like you should call it people in this situation, but not this situation. It just really depends on your energy level, who the other person is like some I could call people out every day. Do I? No, I don't have the energy for that. And I tend upon reflecting for this episode, I tend to call out people that I have some kind of tie to or I respect or I think both who I call out and, you know, I think we witness people getting called out a lot, especially on the Internet. I think it's for people who expect better of people. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to call out a Trump supporter who's like totally for banning immigrants coming. Like, it's just not worth my time when they call people illegal aliens or whatever problematic terms they use. It's just not worth my energy. But if I see a family member or somebody at my school using that term, I will take the time because I expect better of them. And I just, you know, and that's what people have said to me when they've called me out. They've been like, oh, I didn't think that you would say or do something like that. So let me tell you. And yeah, it's like very uncomfortable and it sucks, but they're right. And it's worth listening to. I shouldn't say they're right, but they have a point and they have been impacted enough where they want to take the energy to talk to you. And so it's worth listening So I cannot come up with an argument like, yes, I am for calling out culture or no, I'm against it. It's highly situational. But I am very much more in favor of calling in. That is for sure. Yeah. Do you want to explain that? Yes. And then you can clean it up as you do. Um, (laughs) Where's John? I need to have a um, I need to have like a soundboard. Yeah. (laughs) Where I just clip out that part where he's like, clean it up, Rachel. Right. And then. okay. Anyways, uh, calling in culture is is a response to calling out culture. So instead of this, you know, we've been kind of talking about it very negatively. It leaves bad feelings. It takes a lot of negative energy. But calling in culture is asking somebody to come in to the circle and discuss the issue instead of calling out where you kind of push them away and say, like, no, what you're saying is problematic. You need to fix it. Calling in is having a much more, I think, I don't want to say respectful. I want to say like a generous reading of their intentions. I I borrowed that. I get that a lot from our friend and also former guest, Dr. Timothy Alexiak. He talks about generous readings um, a lot. A generous reading of the person's intentions and wanting to respond in kind. Yes. So having a much more generous reading of the situation and having a, a dialogue with the person and kind of having a kind of having a discussion on on equitable footing too, where you're not, I think when you call out somebody, you kind of puff out your chest. And I think one of the problems of call out culture is that sometimes the reason for it is that you're trying to prove like how good of an activist you are or how woke you are. I'm the most feminist. And I think if you are a feminist or an animal rights person, like you almost find your duty to call out. And if you don't do it, you're like, oh, I should have done it. You know, why didn't I say something? Um, And so that kind of leads to more call out culture. Calling in is a a much more gentle process and it, it creates a dialogue Um, in which you're on equitable footing and you have a conversation, I would argue that it probably has better benefits in the long run. Nobody is, I mean, if somebody wants to do a psychological study, go ahead. There's there's your dissertation idea. But I feel more comfortable with calling in culture. Is it always useful or is it the best? I mean, sometimes it's just not possible. Are you going to call in Milo or (laughs) Spencer? Hell no. Are you going to call him them out? Yes, because... They do run that fine line of hate speech. Like technically, this is why campuses can never not invite them because they could file lawsuits and they know that because it's technically not. It's technically still protected speech because they're not saying go out and kill X, Y, Z or Trump, on the other hand, has done plenty of hate speech in which this blog collection that Rachel has been referencing brings up, but they don't. it just they know the line and they never cross it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they are just they are smart. You call them out. You don't call them in. Right. <laughs> but I think, you know, amongst, you know, to not splinter ourselves and to create a bigger movement for our, you know, our quote unquote side, it is um, better to call in. That's my opinion. What are your opinions on this, Rachel? I, I think I agree with that a lot. And and I think, again, it's it's about context. So, again, it's not the job of the 
marginalized activist who's yelling in the street to be polite and like call in the cops that they're that they're yelling about or the power system you know the oppressors like it's not it's not the job it's not that's in those situations like it you don't have to be polite you don't have to be decorous etc i think it also has to do with like power like no and you're also not going to call in milo but this actually came up in my book club last night the idea of when people if somebody does something racist on twitter for example they'll tell their Mm -hmm. job and try to get them fired Um, yeah i have it's so that it it feels like such a difficult topic for me because sometimes i'm Mm -hmm. like fuck that racist piece of shit don't ever hire that person again but it's really difficult when you think about i'm not trying to defend racist working class people i am trying to think about people's engagement with consciousness raising and uh, a working class person losing their job and never being able to get hired again because they've been had their name sort of put on the internet i don't want to say slandered because they're being honest about how they're racist pieces of shit but it's really hard for me because that person is not really in a position of power. They're, like, saying something on Twitter. So, and some, you know, maybe, and again, that's, like, another gray area. It's like, well, is there, like, an X amount of income that makes that okay? And I, I don't know. But, I mean, it's okay, like, public figures who are pieces of shit, call them out, run their name through the mud. Non-public figures who are pieces of shit, is there a possibility that you could engage that person in conversation? I don't know. It's the same thing when students do racist things at, at school. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, fucking get out of that fucking school. Especially at a college level, you really don't have an excuse to like say that you just like weren't aware <laughs> that this is racism or things like that. And, and I just want to reiterate, I'm not defending any of that shit. It's fucking deplorable. And I've been glad when I've seen people get fired and get kicked out of college. That said, I'm not positive that that is 100% the right answer. I don't know. I'm really scared to say that. Another thing to think about, and one of our readers on our Facebook group, Maddie, who I like very much, very engaged on the page, talked about how call-out culture can be ableist and classist. And that is also true when you think Mm -hmm. about the entry point into these conversations are often a product of education and or time to devote to like being in activist spaces where you learn these things. Not everybody has access to that. I mean, there's, again, this person who wrote the article using transgenderism, like, I'm sorry, you don't have an excuse. You're in higher ed. You have access to the internet. Like, nope. Yeah. But people from my hometown saying transgenderism, okay, right. Yeah, maybe you don't know what that means. Like, you probably never heard anybody ever say anything other than that, if if at all, and you just don't know. And so... Um, as edu- again, as like a, somebody who's really devoted to education, which is like a fundamental part of creating change, agitate, educate, organize, that education component is really key. And if people don't know because they have lack of access to education or work so much that they don't scroll through progressive Tumblr pages and learn all the new lingo, then that's it's really difficult to like say when people fuck up that it's like not their fault because they should be accountable. But I think there is an element of truth that, that call-out culture can be classist. And in terms of ableism, it's it's a similar thing in terms of people. There's this idea of spoon theory that I'm, uh, I think our friend and former guest Angela Carter, who was on the podcast, talked about people with uh, mental disabilities have, there's something called the spoon theory, and, and you have an X number of spoons that you can, sort of energy uh, that you can expend. And if your spoons run out at 5 p.m., you can't keep, reading and learning and engaging because you literally don't have like the the capability to keep engaging. So those are some some ways that we could think I think more broadly about who's being who we're not giving generous readings to without taking those kinds of things into context. And I was just thinking about that with with my mother about when she one of my well, a family friend is transgender and my mom continued to use the wrong pronouns. Mm. And somebody at my work actually uses the wrong pronouns for somebody else, too. And knowing, again, that they don't come from a background in which they're educated on this, like, I wasn't harsh on my mother or my coworker. I was just like, Mom, remember, it's he, him. You know, I wasn't, um, whereas somebody else that would do that, I'd be a lot more fierce with. But I think that's really important to remember thinking through people's background and whether it's even... I don't want to say appropriate, but whether it, I don't know why we can't come up with words today. I swear we have PhDs. There's probably, it's some moon or something. The thing is the yeah. Venus is in somewhere where right. the communication is. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, just context is very important to know where people are coming from. And so that's a good, that's a good reminder. 
Yeah, and I think it's also even the most educated amongst us and, like, people who have time to scroll social media and, like, learn what the kids are saying. Even that, I mean, there's, it's impossible, maybe not impossible, I mean, it feels impossible, I think, to never fuck up. And so I think two things in terms of, we, we always, I think, bring back on the show, like, how to be an ally or an accomplice, especially since we're white ladies. But you can think about that in terms of any area in which you have sort of a more dominant power position to think about how do you respond to those times when you do fuck up is important so it's situations that melanie and i mentioned it's like yeah they fucking sucked but we learned um we listened we learned uh, we didn't just completely shut down i think that's really important and i think also in terms of if you're doing the calling in especially if it's calling in calling out too if if that's the the approach you're taking the emotional labor of that again if it's about race, for example, and you're a white person, like maybe you are the person who should take the time to jump on a Facebook thread and say, hey, I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to be like really polite and I'm going to like talk to you like white person to white person about racism. Yes. Like that's a way that calling in can be effective and something allies can do. It's a tough topic. It is, especially when we start really digging into it. Yeah, I would love to have this conversation continue. I'd be really interested if people want it. There's already a thread going on our Facebook group, but I'd be really curious if people want to tweet at us or jump on that Facebook thread or on the Facebook page. I'd love to hear more thoughts because I think it's really complicated. Important, though, because it's how so many of us move through the world trying to navigate a lot of fucked up things all the time. <laughs> Another thing to say about the, the people who get fired from their jobs is it creates this, this very neoliberal approach. Actually, I'm going to credit my partner, uh, Logan, who made this point this morning when we were talking. It's a very neoliberal approach to sort of finding a solution, right? It's like, let's find this individual who did a bad thing and get them fired or get them kicked out of whatever, which is what we do with cops too, right? It's like, oh, there's that bad apple. Let's let's get him fired and everything will be okay. That individualistic approach is, I think, also problematic and not as generative as other forms of engagement can be because it basically ignores, it creates the bad racist individual or the bad transphobic individual, and it ignores the society that bred that racist or transphobic individual um, and those structural elements that are that are always so important to return to. And I think when if we're constantly blaming individuals, it's it's not productive. It's the same thing with Trump. Honestly, Trump is like a unique kind of monster, but he is a response to a sentiment and um, a desire from a large part of our society that is bred from and born from toxic masculinity and and uh, white nationalism and all of these other things. 100%. And I would say, too, another example, I, I know neoliberalism is maybe a complex term for it took me a while to get my head fully wrapped around it but another like kind of systematic thing that I've been thinking about this week um, as I'm working with the affirmative action officer at my work to just kind of tighten up that program a little bit more is with hiring and about how the structure that is creating a very white dominated workspace and then when you individually choose to hire a white person like are you busted for that or is the system that kind of encourages and rewards white performance Activity at jobs, you know, and this gets this is a whole other conversation that I'd be happy to talk about if people are interested. It's not just the individual who chose to hire the white person. It's the system that kind of rewards white working culture, if that makes sense. You know, this, you know, we're just used to seeing that in the workplace. And then so if people come in with um, other cultural backgrounds, those things will be coded as not as professional or not as not what they're looking for, you know, it, it, just, it just gets coded. And so that's, uh, we could call out, we seriously, our school could get called out for right. our hiring practices. Yeah. Is it individual people's problems? Sure. Is it our structure? Yes. One, you know, and that's just, it's just harder to identify. It's harder to talk through. It's easy to blame individual people. It's a lot harder to talk about the systemic reasons why that keeps happening. And I don't always think it is the individual person being like, I'm racist and I don't want this black person here. I'm going to hire the white person. Right. No, they, they never say it that way. You'd be amazed. Have you ever been on a search committee? Uh, I never have. No, it's I don't think. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. I if anybody is in academia can be on search committees. I highly suggest it. It is 
labor that you do not get repaid for. But in terms of like activism and just kind of seeing how this stuff happens, it is really fascinating. I can't, unfortunately, you know, I can't talk about any of it ethically, but it's, uh, you'll see, you'll see very quickly how these things get, how these things happen. And it's, it's never somebody being like, I don't want the black people. It's just, they're just not good workers. They're lazy. It's, (laughs) oh my God. They're just, the coding is just unbelievable. And it's so you would, it'd take a whole day to unpack what the codes mean. So yeah. Anyways, just another mini example slash bringing up a new topic, uh, which we tend to do. (laughs) Yeah. I think we, you know, I think we hit some good points. I think we could really have a seven-part series on this because there's just so much to say. And I think I would contradict myself and agree with myself and disagree with myself throughout. So let's close out. What are we RWLing this week? Will you start? I would love to start. I'm reading my student scenes. Yay. Which I, I love. I can't wait to see them. Oh, yeah. I will make sure to grab... Do we make the big announcement that I'm going to be in Boston, knock on wood? I think we did briefly, but let's like officially announce it. Maybe if I can get your introvertness okay enough, we can try to see if there can be a meetup potential possibility. That'd be fun. Maybe. Maybe. It'd be totes fun. And I'm going to be in town for Boston Calling. And so this is going to be an amazing moment. I was just thinking about how amazing it's going to be, Rachel, when you and me get to be watching Chance together. I know. IRL. Oh, it's going to be so great. I mean, seriously, do you follow him on the gram? I do. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm back on the gram. Back on the gram. If only. (laughs) If only (laughs) to see the videos of his precious baby. And he was just in St. Paul yesterday. So I think he was flying to St. Paul. Nice. That's awesome. He sold out out an arena. And he's playing at Eau Claire's Music Festival and then at Boston Calling. Like, it's going to be mayhem. Yeah. Anyways. He's made it, as they say. Oh, and he deserves it. So anyways, I'm reading my student zines. They made uh, zines about marginalized media things, being more critical about the... So basically not looking at stereotypes, but instead being like, let's celebrate all these wonderful people who actually kind of challenge the status quo. So of course, you know, because my students, they'll like pick Alicia Keys and the fact she doesn't wear makeup. Hashtag femmes can wear makeup. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then we had like a hip hop one with Kendrick Lamar and um, some Christian rappers that I, so I'm like learning about all these cool things too, that I didn't know anything about. So that's what I'm reading. Amazing. I would much rather grade zines than essays. Anywho, I'm watching the, this is very Boston calling thing here. I'm watching the video for the song called friends. Did you ever listen to that with Bon Iver and Kanye technically is on it and the lights. Remember that from last summer? I do. I loved, I loved that song and video. So I've been watching that video a lot this week because I'm trying to learn the dance. I never taught myself <laughs> the dance, which seems really weird because that I'm I love to dance. Can we so, post that on social meds? Oh my gosh, this would be a great newsletter teaser. Can we put it in the newsletter? Me dancing? Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. Eventually, when you learn. No, no, no. This is good. I'll learn it this weekend. I have nothing else to do but procrastinate on not grading. So <laughs> great. <laughs> I will definitely do that. Perfect. And also might prepare us because let me remind you that Chance and Bon Iver are going to be there on the same day, and at Eau Claire's. Chance surprised people last year by showing up when Francis and the Lights was playing, and then Boney Vera got on stage, and so did Chance, and Chance did the dance with them. Oh, that'd be amazing. I hope that happens here. And then I'm listening to the Kendrick Lamar's album. I finally put it in my CD player. And you don't like um, it? Well, I feel like it was one of those albums that I couldn't just like put in. Like I really needed some headspace, and I've been so busy with school that last night I actually kind of felt decompressed enough to listen to it. And I'm sorry, but like some Drake songs, I really had to fast. I had to be like, nope. I think uh, my partner calls it like I nexted it. I don't know. I do this thing where if a song comes on and it's like too much about bitches or pussies or being a pussy or or like, and I, I know like he loves women, but just it was too raunchy for me. And this is me being like me. But I feel like his last album was a lot more politically grounded. And this one got to, it was just like more like, traditional gangster rap which that's the genre that he Mm -hmm. is and I just I love gangster rap until they start I'm down with the police stuff I'm down with taking over from the white person I love all that stuff but it's the women thing that I just can't I just yeah I'm trying to think of some of the lyrics that you would be referring to 
Um, and honestly, it it was just hearing pussy pussy. And I can't even remember them either. It was enough, though, <laughs> for me to be like, next. So, like, I don't know if anybody listens to hip hop radio stations, but it's mostly men. And it just gets so repetitive. You know, the socially conscious hip hop that I usually listen to that will have conversations about just, I don't, just anything but bitches and hoes and pussies and just... (laughs) Yeah, no, I hear you. I think um, I actually, I don't like love even the beats of all the songs. So I really, I listen to like three to four songs on the album mostly. So, and one of them says bitch a lot, but um, that's also the same song where he talks about loving natural women. Yeah, and I, that song's um, fine. I don't mind yeah, that song. Yeah, so, yeah, I really, I listen to DNA, Humble, Love. Those are the three I listen to the most. So maybe I'm just like not remembering. But yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, and I was kind of lukewarm about the other songs in general. So yeah, yeah, I, I can do a fuller report back. I just threw it in and I have the CD. So did do you get the track where it's like a one minute track and he's talking about a blind woman? Yes. Who? Yeah. Okay. See, so it started, that's how the album starts out. And then yep. it links up into police brutality with the news stuff. And yeah. I was like, yes. And then and then it like just goes somewhere else. Yeah. And and it, and I know I want to acknowledge I'm a white person. I'm a white woman and I'm not criticizing black expressions of music like Kendrick can do his thing. I totally still respect him. Just personally, me, I do not like those songs. I'm not slamming gangster rapper. It's fine. It's just my feminist framework that just makes me kind of shudder. It's the same reason for why we had talked about that Drake video for the Cheesecake Factory. And the yeah. beginning is amazing yeah. <laughs> and then so unoriginally yeah. moves to the strip club like yeah. it's so not and that's what I think is maybe making me disappointed with Kendrick is like you do amazing cultural work yeah and it bums me out when people go back to the like the traditional thing but again I'm a white lady I'm not from that culture I'm not from Compton I'm not from that space at all. That's his expression. I just am not a huge fan. And so I felt as a white person, I needed to share my opinion because that's what white people do. <laughs> I'm sure everybody's very grateful that they know. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I've been dying to know. Yeah, no, but I, I, I hear you on everything. I don't disagree with that. So I'm also reading student papers. Uh, I had two sections of a class that was my sex and gender class, and they wrote about the sex po- sex positive, comprehensive sex education curriculum that they did for their group projects. But they were not very inspired papers. They were, you know, it was mostly students. I think that were just trying to get those papers done. So those weren't. They were fun to read in some in terms of some of the things. Oh, you'll you'll appreciate slash want to cry everywhere about this. There were like multiple student papers from young women who said that. They it, they did not know that women, that, that girls were allowed and are capable of masturbating throughout most of their life. Mm-hmm. And it was just like so sad to read so those sad. things. So, so sad. true. Yeah. So, that so was, true. Yeah, yeah. I also had a senior seminar this semester and those papers were fucking amazing. I had six seniors writing 25-page uh, papers about things like police violence against queer and trans communities, about women's programming or the lack thereof in women's prisons, um, women of color in the criminal justice workforce. Uh, Really, really wonderful, Mm. wonderful papers. And I'm really, really, really proud of them. Watching I Left Blank because I I did not make time for television this week. So in terms of videos that I was watching, I mean, I was watching the free speech march from Boston today on Twitter feeds. Um, so that was that was fascinating. And listening to I've been listening to this for a few weeks now, but the new Sylvan Esso album is <gasps> really, I have to get that. It's really, really good. It's like I love them. It's solid start to finish. It's really dreamy. It's great. Do you know there's a Milwaukee connection there? Did I ever tell you that? I don't remember I, if you told me I that. excuse me. Let me impress you. I went to high school for one year with Nick Sanborn and we were in a play together and I have multiple pictures of us together. Wow. And then we stayed in touch. Yeah, and then we both moved to Milwaukee, and so I know him. I mean, he recognized he come me. Come on the show, um, because we don't like stay in touch. Touch like okay. I only I'm just stayed. Ke- in- I'm just kidding, but yeah. Um, yeah. and also I think he 
he's so many white guys. So no, right. Um, it's true. It's true. We were both like in the same music scene in Milwaukee for many years, and he joined one of my favorite bands, Decibully, in Milwaukee. Oh towards yeah, the end I know Decibully. Yeah. Oh. Towards the end of their tenure. Yep. So he is mega talented and I'm just really happy that they found each other. Um, it's a very cute story about how they became a band together. Are they a couple? Yes. Okay. I didn't, I actually, I don't so, know much about them like IRL. She, so she, and they performed at, uh, so they're performing at Boston Calling. They performed at Eau Claire's last year or two years mm-hmm. ago. She is the coolest. Like she does aerobics basically. Like she doesn't awesome. care. Like yeah. her form of like femininity is amazing. Yeah. And just oh, you're gonna love her. Like great performers. But also, do you know Maggie Rogers, that artist? I don't think I do. Okay, you should check her out. And listeners, I'm curious if you know these both if both of these artists she was on the radio and I was like, This is the new Sylvanesso. And then they're like, That was just Maggie Rogers. And they sound identical. And I don't know who's copying who. Hmm. They both have, but at the same time, they both have folk backgrounds. And so I don't know if it's that folk voice that I'm not super familiar with that they Hmm. just have. You know, it might be me like being like, all black rappers sound the same. Is that (laughs) a chance? I'm not sure. You know, that might just be me like not understanding folk. But I swear if you watch their video, she even does like this quirky dance thing that she does I would be curious, and if anybody else wants to, you know, listen to a Sylvanesso song and then listen to a Maggie Rogers song, I love both of them because Maggie Rogers reminds me of Sylvanesso, but it's almost yeah. like a little bit too familiar, and you're like, yeah. Anyway, was that it? Reading, watching, listening. Yeah, that's all. That's all I got. But we put we'll put more in the newsletter if you get it. We put more links, more linkies. WTF. Power. Bye. She walked it so fast, she walked it so fast, she walked it so fast. Oh, lady, she don't know how she go. She walked it so fast, she walked it so fast, she walked like a baby. Her image lasts, and I know she floats so long as she goes. She owns the eyes as she flies right through the sound, moving her body all around town. Hey, mommy, hey, mommy, I know you want me. I know what you want, I know what you want Sooner or later the dudes at bodegas will hold their lips and own this shit Coming to terms on a shivery tip But I'm here, oh shit, don't know the gravity she holds As she pulls on the eyeballs of all the kids standing tall She walked the fast, she walked the fast, she walked the fast. Oh, lady, she don't know how she goes. She walked the fast, she walked the fast, she walked like a baby. Look at that ass, and I know she floats along as she goes. She owns her eyes as she flies.